Just out of curiosity, how many of you all, uh, once you get to this time of year, really kind of crank up the Christmas and it's all Christmas all the time uh, from your car radio? Anybody, anybody like me? Several of you are very much like that. That is me. It didn't used to be me. I grew up in a radio station and so I was forced to play a lot of Christmas music, a lot of really bad Christmas music, and so it kind of turned me from Christmas music, but as I have grown older, I find myself revisiting it, and so I listen to Christmas music all the time in my car from Thanksgiving on. But I will say this, I find myself listening not to the new stuff, I listen to the old stuff, and by the old stuff, I mean the, the songs that uh, I uh, grew up hearing on the television specials. I'm old enough that they used to have these television specials that I would watch every year, Bing Crosby and, and Perry Como and Dean Martin. Those Christmas specials uh, filled uh, the holiday sounds of my life while I was growing up. So I listen, I have a satellite radio in my car and I listen to holiday traditions, which is the old stuff. And that way I am guaranteed to never... Uh, hear uh, anything by Justin Bieber, uh, and I'm, I'm guaranteed to, to never hear Last Christmas by Wham, and I am thankfully, thankfully prohibited from ever hearing New Shoes by whoever. I can't stand it. I offended somebody earlier. I'm sorry. I'm right on that. New Shoes is bad, but because uh, Christmas shoes, that's what it's called, not new shoes. That's how bad it is. I don't even know the stupid name, you know? Whatever. But because I do listen to the old music, there are some newer songs that actually I really enjoy that I don't get to hear very much. There have been a handful of songs released in my lifetime that, that find themselves getting a lot of seasonal airplay. The first one that comes to mind for uh, our family is Tennessee Christmas. It's written while I was in high school, but uh, Julie and I uh, were living in Tennessee and raising our family in Tennessee when that song was uh, ascending in its popularity, so that's a song that I, I enjoy hearing a lot. In small doses, if I'm in the right mood, I, I like to hear uh, that Mariah Carey song, whatever that's called. What is that called? All I Want for Christmas is You. So again, small doses, very small doses. I don't mind hearing that. I love I love the Kelly Clarkson song, Underneath the Tree, which I have found out by airplay, by streams, and by sales is the most popular Christmas song written in the 21st century, but I submit to you that it's popular because it sounds old. So that's just, that's just what I would like to say to you. But there are two songs that really thematically don't fit very well with Christmas that um, have impacted me in my life. Uh, one when I was in college, one just a song that I heard in some of my formative years kind of surveying the world. The one that came out when I was in college is called Do They Know It's Christmas? Um, it was released when I was a freshman in college. And it was written to the Western world uh, to spur them to action uh, regarding the Ethiopian famine that was ongoing in the early and, and mid-1980s. The gist of it is, remember that while you're enjoying yourself and eating to excess and spending it to excess, that there are people who are dying in our world that just don't have the basics to survive. It's not typical, but it had such an effect that the Live Aid concert of 1985 was the result of it, or it raised millions for for famine relief. The other song was a song that came out when I was a boy, but because of my formative memories, it just impacted me. And it's the John Lennon Yoko Ono song, Happy Christmas War is Over. John hates that song. John is wrong. 
but, but John hates that song. Um, it's essentially a song that just asks for peace and doesn't know where to find it, up and to the point that it cuts out the word Christ in Christmas and just has Xmas. It just doesn't know where to find it. Um, it was written to protest the Vietnam War at the time, but it continues to show up year after year, both in its original form and it's covered by other artists. And the song begins with these words. And so this is Christmas. For weak and for strong, for rich and the poor ones, the world is so wrong. And so happy Christmas for black and for white, for yellow and red ones. Let's all stop the fight. The reason that that song has had over 50 years of staying power now is because it has tapped into a universal hope for peace in a world that seems utterly incapable of being able to find where that peace might come from. So today I want to point you to the scripture that tells us where it comes from, a passage of scripture that we read year in, year out this time of year, as we see how God promises a world aching for peace, where to find it veiled in flesh. If you would please find Isaiah 9 in your copy of God's Word, Isaiah chapter 9. Now, as I mentioned last week, we have a lot in common with the world of Isaiah's time. It was a world that was filled with anxiety because of a rapidly changing geopolitical condition and the resultant war and conflict, the the people of Judah, where Jerusalem sat, felt this anxiety, especially as the war and the enemy occupation that had always been elsewhere was knocking at their doorstep. And even when it wasn't, the threat of that kind of thing was hanging so heavily in, in the air that, that they had a hard time really being able to grasp peace. And so into that despair, God pours these words that we read every year from the prophet Isaiah. So if you would please stand as we honor the reading of God's word this morning from Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Thank you. You may be seated. There are two things that I want us to latch on to here this morning, both of them profoundly important for us as we consider the world's need for peace. And the first is this, Jesus, Jesus is peace veiled in flesh. 
not points to, not provides. But Jesus is peace veiled in flesh. The, the first several verses, let's just be honest, of Isaiah chapter 9 are verses that we skip over. It's the reason we never read them. The reason we never read them is because the geopolitical situation that they describe and the geography that they describe are, are completely foreign to us. But, but let's see if we can take care of both of those things for a little bit this morning so that we can appreciate more fully the money verses that we get to in verses 6 and 7. First, the geography of it. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali were the regions in the northern part of the nation of Israel. Now, the reason that they're being alluded to as being in such dire straits is because after the death of King Solomon, there was essentially a civil war in uh, Israel as the northern tribes broke off from the rule of the southern tribe of Judah and the city of Jerusalem. And God's punishment on the northern tribes for doing this was their utter, folks, listen to me, their utter destruction. Now, a lot of times in books you read, you'll hear uh, uh, tribes referred to as the lost tribes of Israel. That's what's being referred to. It's, it's referring to the northern tribes of Israel. That's what it means when he says that it has been treated with contempt. They had been plunged into darkness by God for their rebellion against him and his rule. And, and now that, that same kind of judgment that had happened way up to the north was being visited on Jerusalem in the tribe of Judah. Why? Why was that happening? Well, the final verses of chapter 8 tell us that God had gone into hiding, essentially, from the people of Jerusalem and from the tribe of Judah. And the reason that he had done so was because of their continuous unrepentant sin, because of their continuous sin and their rebellion against God. God had plunged them into a spiritual darkness, a darkness that was made worse by their steadfast refusal to go to the only source of light that they had to get out of the darkness in God himself. I, I've had the occasion many times over the years to listen to people speak about how God seems to be in hiding from me, doesn't seem to be speaking to me, I can't hear from him. And almost on every occasion when I ask them, well, have you been spending time in his word where God speaks to us, where his voice resides? Almost always they will say no. And so they get into this terrible cycle of saying, I desperately want to hear from God, but because I feel this distance from Him, I won't go to the place where I know that I can hear from Him. And it just spirals and spirals out of control. This same thing was happening to the people of Israel. Jump down to verse 16 of Isaiah 9. Listen to what happened. He says, for those who guide this people, and he's speaking there of the kings, and he's speaking of the priests who were to be the spiritual guides of the people, have been leading them astray. They've not been pointing them to the word that can sustain them and from where they can hear God's voice and where they can find the light to get out of their darkness. And therefore, those who they are guiding have been swallowed up by this darkness. Therefore, verse 17, the Lord does not rejoice over their young men and has no compassion on their fatherless and widows, for everyone is godless, an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly, for all his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still against these people for their refusal to repent of their sin. For wickedness burns like a fire, verse 18, it consumes briars and thorns, it kindles the thickets of the forest. And they roll upward in a column of smoke. 
Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched, and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. And so then they're completely, chronically dissatisfied. Verse 20, they slice meat on the right, but they're still hungry. They devour on the left, but they're still not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. They're just not satisfied because they can't hear from God, and yet in their sin, they refuse to pursue God. Things haven't changed much. When God is silent because of sin, the tendency for all of us is to run further and further from his word and further and further from his people. And as we do that, the silence grows deafening and the darkness grows to an inky black. And it's all because of the stubborn cycle of sin that exists in our lives. And yet, in spite of all of that from us, God shows and promises mercy. God does it. Look back at verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. It's not that they found it, it's just that it's been visited on them. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shown. You, speaking of God, have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. God, in his mercy, because of the the utter incapability of human beings to find their way out of their own spiritual darkness and find their way to God, has visited the people with mercy. Now, a superficial reading of Isaiah 9 might lead you to conclude that what God is promising here is a deliverance from the national calamity of being overrun by foreign powers. But as far as, as the nation and the political rulers of the time were concerned, they didn't realize this, that was the least of their problems. In fact, those were systematic results of their problems. Isaiah's gone to great lengths in his book to show the people of Judah that the threat of takeover was merely a symptom of a deeper problem. Their sin had brought on them the troubles that they were facing. And God was delivering them from that, not the the consequences of their sin. That was going to happen. They were going to get joy where there had previously been gloom. But what God was really doing, the thing that should really stoke the joy and get them fired up, was that he was delivering them from the sin that caused the consequences that they lamented. This is what God does. He doesn't just deliver us from guilt He delivers us from the sin that causes guilt. If you've been taking our advice and reading through the Advent Devotional Gifts of Grace by Jared Wilson, this is what he talks about today. The fact that God delivers us not just from the guilt of sin, but from the sin itself, that which has alienated us from him. And God is saying to the people of Israel, if you could just grasp that God is going to deliver you not from an earthly enemy, but from the sin that makes you an enemy of God, then your joy will be unimaginably intensified. I think there's this mistaken notion that peace means the absence of conflict and trial. And to be sure, to be sure... God is promising that to the people of Israel in Isaiah 9. But the only Hebrew word that everybody knows is shalom. And shalom doesn't just mean peace. 
In fact, the only reason that it's translated as peace is because it's such a complex and rich word that that's just the easiest way that we can throw out into our language that scratches the surface of it. Shalom means total well-being. It means that I'm a person whose welfare has been completely provided for. And that leads to an experience of peace, but that's only part of it. God has acted in mercy to deliver from sin, to remove that alienation that exists between sinners and God. And knowing that your biggest problem in life has been provided for by God gives you a sense of complete and total well-being, a, a, a peaceful spot in the center of life's storm. So God's going to do this. God's going to give them this kind of well-being. He himself is the one who's going to shine the light. He himself is the one who's going to provide mercy. But here comes Christmas. The way he's going to do that is not to provide an experience. He's going to provide a person that will bring that. And he, he talks about it. We just overlook it. Go back to verse 1 again. He says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former times, he brought into contempt, because of their sin and rebellion, Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But notice at the end how he talks about the same region in different words. But in the latter times, he has made glorious the way of the sea and the land beyond the Jordan. And then he says, here's the place I'm talking about. Same place as Naphtali and Zebulun, but now I'm talking to you about it as you know it. I'm, I'm calling it Galilee. He, he's saying what? He's saying that peace is going to come from Galilee. He's saying that there will come a day of a glorious transformation for the people of Judah. From contempt to blessing. And it is going to come from Galilee. The blessing of peace will be experienced in Galilee. It will come from Galilee one day in the future. And the reason that he is saying that is because the person of peace who's going to provide all of this is going to come from Galilee, specifically Nazareth. And his name is Jesus. Now let's look again at the familiar words that Isaiah uses to describe this one who will come from Galilee. Jesus. Look at verse 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. How is it that Jesus, coming from Galilee, is going to be able to provide peace. Well, there are four descriptions giving of this one who will come from Galilee in Isaiah 9. Counselor, God, Father, Prince. And then there are four descriptors added to that, qualities added to that. Wonderful, mighty, eternal, and peace. 
The first two of those things, wonderful counselor, mighty God, those refer to or indicate the wisdom that will inhabit this one who will come from Galilee. In Scripture, the, the word wonderful indicates supernatural abilities, and counselor refers to one who advises or plans. Taken together, they tell us that the one who would come and bring peace is someone who is supernaturally gifted to rule wisely. But the most important aspects of the person through whom peace will be experienced is his worthiness. Peace is experienced through someone who's worthy, and his worthiness is described by Isaiah in a way that should overwhelm us. This one who will bring peace is the mighty God with the strength to maintain peace. He is the eternal or the everlasting Father who has the longevity and compassion to guarantee that peace will be a nonstop existence. That is why he is called the Prince of Peace. And as this Prince of Peace, verse 4 says, he will break the rod of oppression, Oppression caused by sin. And in verse 5, he tells us he'll take the implements of war that people use to, to perpetuate their conflict with one another, and he will make them obsolete. If we were to put that into modern terms, we would be thinking of those things which we use to wage war against one another today, our email threads, our social media feeds. All of those things will be rendered no longer necessary because God himself will bring and send peace by coming himself. But it's been 2,000 years. It's been 2,000 years. So where is this promised peace? Well, we must first understand that this peace is first a personal experience. This peace is what we have, who are the enemies of God. When we are are made right with God through the blood and the life of Jesus. When we are made right with God through Jesus Christ, that source of fundamental conflict in our lives is removed because we are able to be in a relationship with God in the way that he has intended. That's where it starts. It starts with you and I having the experience, the experience of salvation through Jesus Christ. But, of course, not everyone is going to embrace Jesus as Savior. And that's the ultimate source of the conflict that continues today. So we have to get this last point, which is very important. If Jesus is peace veiled in flesh, then this, the church is peace displayed in flesh. Displayed in flesh. When the scriptures say that you and I, as followers of Jesus, are the body of Christ, it's not simply a metaphor. It's just not a pretty way of saying something. It is saying that the church and its individual members are the means by which Christ is manifesting his physical presence in the world today. One of the clearest statements of this is found in Romans chapter 6. You don't have to turn there. It'll be on your screens. But listen to what Paul says about the experience we have as being the habitation of Christ on earth. In Romans 6 verse 5, he says, For if we've been united with him in a death like his, 
we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. In other words, our lives become the vehicle through which Jesus is living his life. Verse 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Now, I get that Paul's writings can sometimes be intimidating. I mean, the 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 thickness and the metaphor and all of the things he uses can be difficult for us to grasp, but his logic here is really very simple. He is saying that Christ fully identified with our sin by taking it on himself on the cross. And the result is, because that sin has been taken away, that you and I can now fully identify with him by taking his life into our own so that we quite literally, not metaphorically, please hear me, carry the life of Jesus with us. Wherever we go, Jesus becomes a full participant with us in our lives. He becomes an active participant with you and with me in every interaction we have with anyone. So I tell you the most important question that you can ask in regard to personal holiness is not what would Jesus do and wear the bracelet. The most important question we can ask as far as personal holiness is, what am I making Jesus do with me? This is the logic that is at the heart of Paul's teaching on sexual immorality in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that we drag Jesus, not metaphorically, but literally with us into that sexual immorality when we claim to be his followers. But in light of the truth that you and I as individuals and collectively as the church, are the physical manifestation of Christ on earth. Perhaps the most important question we can ask in regard to our personal mission is not what will make me happy, but is instead what am I displaying of Jesus through my life? In other words, put it more simply, if I carry Jesus with me. What am I showing others about it? And let's just get real honest. How good are you at displaying total well-being? Shalom to the world around you. Remember, it's not just absence of conflict that we're displaying. We're not supposed to go to the, to the world and just pretend that life doesn't stink for us sometimes, that we're not going through incredible difficulty. But if we carry the life of Jesus with us into every human interaction, we get the problem or get the opportunity to not say, I don't have any problems, but that I have an anchor in the midst of it. That I have peace in the midst of it. The goal of our lives should be to stay so in sync with Jesus, the Prince of Peace, that the total well-being that he brings is the most evident thing about our lives. And I've got a long, long way to go. And if I ever had any doubt that I had a long, long way to go of demonstrating that peace, that total well-being, 2020 erased all doubt for almost all of us. I mean, we engaged in conspiracy theories. 
We hoarded toilet paper. Toilet paper. Guys, it was the single greatest opportunity that the church has been given since 9-11 to show the neighbors around us the peace that Jesus alone can bring. And we became conspiracy theory evangelists and we hoarded toilet paper. I don't know if the church is going to get another chance in America to display the peace of Jesus in the flesh like the opportunity that has just passed us by. But I will promise you that every single one of us will be given micro-opportunities on the interpersonal level every day this week to demonstrate the peace of Jesus operating through our lives. I'm talking little things like being kind to a slow cashier. Have you had that experience? I mean, you get in line somewhere, you're in, a, you're in the world's biggest hurry for nothing, but you just think, I'm so super important that I can't waste a second of my life. And like me, you have the spiritual gift of picking the slowest line. And you get in the line and you watch maybe an elderly person trying to navigate all that stuff or a young person trying to figure it out or, or, or somebody else and you just think, oh, no, woe is me. And then you're throwing your money at them when you get to the line and you huff off. I'm a follower, by the way, of the Prince of Peace. Micro-opportunities. But there are bigger things in life where we get the opportunity to display peace. Like not feeling like we have to live a harried life. That we can... Dial back our family's calendar so we've got more time to serve Christ through his church. That demonstrates I'm not controlled by what everybody else thinks is important and is not leaving them fulfilled. The things which they gnaw their own arms off for. I'm not controlled by that. Because I have the Prince of Peace. But most of all, I'm talking about the biggest thing in life. Of not presenting a calm center to the world, but presenting a transcendent savior to the world and talking with others, sharing with others about your life with the person of peace, with those for whom peace is non-existent or maybe those you attend church with where their peace is misplaced. I'm talking about sharing Jesus with your neighbors and reminding your fellow Jesus followers of who Jesus really is. So here's my challenge. It's two part. First, let me challenge followers of Jesus. I want you to ask yourself right now, just honestly, I'm not going to ask you to raise hands or anything like that, but I want to ask you right now, consider your overall satisfaction with Jesus. How satisfied are you with Jesus? right now how much peace in your life do you really derive from him as you think about that I want you to commit to block time every day this week to be with Jesus in his words so that his light can shine into your darkness 
I, I, I would just recommend, if you don't know where to start, just read a psalm. And rather than just read it, talk to Jesus as you go through it. It's what I do every day, every day. I will read a psalm and I'll talk to Jesus about it as we walk through it. And he'll highlight things in my life that I need to, to lift up to him. He will bring to mind some of your faces and I lift you up. I mean, that's what I do every day. But just spend time with him every day in his word. And then commit to display the peace that Christ brings in one small way and in one big way this week. Small way, pick a slow line. In, on purpose, pick a slow line and encourage the checker. In one big way, look for somebody around you who's got a misplaced peace and talk to them about Jesus. But here's my challenge if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus. You are chasing empty paths. All you can do is ask the question like John Lennon, where is peace? Until you meet the one who is the person of peace, Jesus. And reach out to an elder, reach out to a family member, reach out to somebody on your pew and talk to them about what it means to find Jesus as the Prince of Peace. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.